0: Um, If you would, as a favor to me, after the service, if you haven't already, please pick up a commitment card. They're on these tables on either side of me here by the doors on your way out. And then please prayerfully consider filling them out, however you feel led, and returning them next Sunday as we complete our recommitment. Now let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to read for us from verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he, meaning Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. It's always nice when you're reading the Bible and you come to one of the parables and you know exactly what the parable means. Um, A lot of the parables aren't like that. You know, parables are stories, and stories have to be interpreted, and With some of the parables that Jesus told, there's a lot of different ways you can legitimately interpret it. But this parable, the one we're looking at this morning, is not one of those because Jesus tells us precisely what He means in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the point of this parable, obviously, is to teach us how to pray always or continually, or without ceasing, and there are more than a dozen references to this kind of prayer in the Bible. In the New Testament in particular, I'll just give you a few of them. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 18, that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He commands the church at Rome, this is Romans twelve twelve to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And then in Colossians 4-2, Paul says to the church there in Colossae, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, for most of my life as a Christian, when I heard some preacher-type person like me get up and say uh, that followers of Jesus are to always or constantly continue in prayer, immediately my mind would flood with these objections, like, that's impossible, There's no way you can pray without ceasing, pray without stopping, pray all the time. Or I would feel guilty because although maybe I couldn't pray all the time, I knew I could pray more than I already did. I had more praying that I could legitimately do. Or I would just feel burdened because I felt obligated to pray, I knew I was supposed to pray, but I just didn't know how to do it. And so my hope this morning in this sermon is for you to walk out of here prepared to pray more than you do now, but without hopelessness, without guilt, without a sense of burden. So what I want to do is show you from this text two keys to this constant, continuous, without-ceasing kind of prayer that the New Testament talks about. And those two keys are, first of all, realizing that prayer is fueled by recognizing our own helplessness. And then second, prayer is encouraged by remembering God's faithfulness. It's fueled by recognizing our own helplessness, and it's encouraged by remembering God's faithfulness. So first, this constant prayer comes out of recognizing your own helplessness. We're introduced to two characters in this parable. The first is a judge. Every town in Judea would have had at least a couple of these guys. Their job was to decide in matters of civil disputes. They could award property or monetary damages. They usually ruled in matters of broken contracts and land sales. But Jesus does not paint a pretty picture of this judge in Luke 18 because he says the judge, quote, neither feared God nor respected men. And that's not a compliment. In 2 Chronicles, we read that King Jehoshaphat of Israel, uh, of Judah in the Old Testament, went throughout the land appointing judges, and he specifically said he wanted them to have the fear of the Lord. To not fear God in this context could only mean one thing, wickedness. This was a wicked man. He didn't respect his office. He didn't respect the purpose of his office. And rather than impartially applying the law, he was only out to enrich himself through his office. So that's the judge. But the second character we meet is the widow. She's involved in some kind of dispute. We don't know what it is, but she's been wronged, and she wants the judge to do his job and give her justice. But the judge, because he's wicked, because he's unrighteous, is looking for a bribe, and either she can't or, more likely, she won't give it to him. She just expects him to do his job because it's his job. But the very fact that this woman is arguing on her own before the judge shows you how helpless she is. In that society, a woman did not appear in court by herself. She always got a kinsman to do it. If you're you're married, your husband did it. But since she's a widow, she has no husband, it would have been a brother or a cousin or an uncle or a son. No man appears before. On her behalf, she's all alone. Widows had no power. They could not own property. They rarely had any money. And widows in towns like this one had no voice when the judges refused to do what they were supposed to do. She was helpless. Now, have you ever noticed, especially as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke over the last few springs, have you ever noticed how often Jesus' stories and examples uh, he, he, he centers them on so stereotypically helpless people? I mean, it's never, you know, it's never the strong, good-looking guy that's at the center of the parable that Jesus tells. It's always a widow. It's always a beggar covered with sores. It's always the poor. It's always the crippled. It's always the blind. It's always the deaf. Why does he do that? Why does he always center his stories on the helpless people? Because he wants us to see how helpless we are that's why now if you know you're helpless you pray all the time do you know what I call people who know they are helpless and I mean they really know they are helpless they really know they have no power to do anything meaningful you know what I call those people who believe in Jesus I call them mature Christians They pray all the time because they know that life in this fallen world is too much for them. They are helpless in the face of all the troubles and sufferings and tribulations that they face. They know they are helpless, and they know they don't have the wisdom to make the right decision or raise their children properly or be trusted with money. They know they're helpless, so they, they know they, they don't know how to really love their spouses or tell other people about Jesus or be a good friend to someone who's hurting. And so their life is just, a, if you're really helpless and you know you're helpless, then your life is one of constant prayer. It just, it's like breathing to someone who knows they're helpless. And these prayers might just be one or two words like help or thank you or what next or forgive me. And sometimes it's just you're in a stressful situation and you're just saying, Father, 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 or Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you know you're helpless and you pray all the time, you don't have to listen to a word I say the rest of the morning. This sermon is not for you. In fact, you probably should come up here and preach the sermon. So if that's you, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking, about the other, I'm talking to the other 98% of us in the room. Those of us who don't sufficiently know that we're helpless and certainly don't live like we are helpless. And I'm talking about myself. I was mightily convicted about my prayerlessness as I was studying this text. If mature Christians navigate life by praying so much like it's breathing what do we the rest of us do how do we manage life that comes at us well i'll break it down i think into two activities okay if you don't know you're helpless then when life throws you a curveball you either you first of all you try to control the situation if we aren't praying then at a heart level what that means is we really believe that our talents our intelligence our work ethic, our money, they're really enough to meet the situation. I mean, if you think you have the resources to handle what life throws at you, then you don't pray. Uh, Paul Miller, and his book, A Praying Life, which I commend greatly to you and I relied on heavily as I wrote this sermon, he tells a story about his adult daughter Kim who has autism. She, when she was 20 or 21, something like that, she started waking up early every morning, like 4, 4.30, and she would pace down the hallway of their house. Uh, the problem was that she slept in a bedroom on the second floor, and Paul and his wife Jill slept on a bedroom, in a bedroom on the first floor. And Kim's pacing was more like jogging, okay? So every morning at 4 or 4.15 or 4.30, Paul and Jill would would hear someone jogging up and down the hall right above their bedroom, and it would wake them up. Uh, Now, Paul, as a Christian man, an ordained man, a missionary, he had prayed for his daughter for years, but it never occurred to him to pray for his daughter to stop pacing. And the reason, he says... He never prayed for his daughter to stop pacing, is because he thought he already knew, he had knowledge, what to do in the situation. Just tell Kim to stop pacing. That's all you got to do. He thought it's so easy, so simple, uh, so he didn't feel helpless and he didn't pray, and so he would, he would for for years tell Kim stop pacing, go back to bed. But, you know, when you're on the first floor and you're saying this to somebody on the second floor, it's more like yelling. So for years, he would yell at his daughter, stop pacing, go back to bed, and nothing changed. Okay, we'll come back to that story in a minute. But what I want you to know is that we are all guilty of thinking that we have the knowledge to control the situations we face, and that's why we don't pray. So we think, I don't need to pray about this issue at work or at school. I just need to get there earlier, work harder, study more. That's the answer. I already know the answer, but I don't need to pray. I don't need to pray about my marriage. I know what I need to do. I need to read this book that this person gave me on marriage and schedule a date night. I don't need to pray about my children. They just need a little more discipline, perhaps a tutor, maybe some medication. But I don't need to pray about them. I don't need to pray about my money. I just need to stick to my budget. And if I just spend within my means, everything will be fine. I don't need to pray about it. And we certainly don't think we need to pray about our own hearts. Because we think if we just have enough willpower, we can make the changes we need to make and everything will be fine. Now, Mind you, none of us consciously thinks, none of us who are Christian parents consciously think, I don't need to pray for our children. But at a heart level, that's what we believe when we refuse to pray for our children and instead do all these other things that we do. Even though we know that the only person in the universe with the power to get inside the hearts of our children and change them The Lord of the universe himself is right there ready to be asked to do this work. No Christian would ever say, I don't need to pray about how jealous and angry I get. But at a heart level, that's what we believe. When we do everything else, instead of asking God to get inside of us and do this work. So we... If we, don't, if we don't think we're helpless and we don't pray, that means that I, A, we, either, we are trying to control the situation, or B, we are carrying around anxiety all the time. Prayerlessness is like carrying around your anxiety as if it's a hundred-pound stone on your back. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. There, there are different levels of anxiety. What I'm talking about, what I'm thinking in these next few minutes, is is that level of anxiety 90 to 95% of us experience. I'm not talking about extreme levels of anxiety, though I'm not going to go so far as to say that um, this sermon doesn't apply even to those situations. But we carry around our anxiety if we're not helpless, if we don't recognize our helplessness. The Bible says our anxiety should be a springboard to prayer. When we feel worried, it should lead us to pray. That's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, where Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we find ourselves anxious, It should prompt us. It should lead us to pray. But if we aren't acutely aware of our own helplessness, then when we find ourselves anxious, all we will do is suppress it or try to manage it or try to medicate it or try to smother it with pleasure. But we won't actually deal with the issue itself. One pastor said that when we don't pray over the things that worry us, we create what he calls unused prayer links. And he had this vivid illustration to explain what they are like. He said unused prayer is like a power line that's downed, but it's still got a current running through it, so it's just flopping around everywhere. Electricity's shooting out of the ends, and it's scorching everything it touches. That's what it's like to be anxious and not prayerful. Anxiety means being unable to relax in the face of the chaos of this world. It means constant tension. It means short tempers and an inability to sympathize with people who are hurting. And it can, of course, get to the point to where the anxiety is so crippling that you can't even get out of bed in the morning. But if you This parable is teaching that if you recognize how helpless you are, that this world is too much for you, that your talents and your work ethic and your knowledge and your money, however great those things might be, are not enough to help you navigate this life. Let alone love the people around you. If you will recognize how thoroughly helpless you are, this parable tells you that instead of trying to control everything or carry around your anxiety on your back, you can instead set it down at the foot of Jesus through prayer. But you've got to know you're helpless. You've got to really believe you're helpless before you'll do that. First. Now second. Second. If we want to pray constantly, we've got to remember God's faithfulness. Recognize our helplessness. Remember God's faithfulness. The thing that shocks so many of the scholars who have studied this passage and written on it over the years is that God in this parable is represented by a wicked person. Jesus uses an unscrupulous, unrighteous judge to be the God figure in the story. And, and a lot of people wrestle with that. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, why, instead of, why not, instead of an unjust judge, Jesus paint the picture of a kindly grandfather and put that person in the place of God in the parable? You know, the kind of kindly grandfather who sits on the front row at church and he always has peppermints in his pocket and so all the kids know they can come to him and get candy. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus put in the place of God in the parable someone who clearly doesn't care? Anyone know the answer? Because it will often, at least for short periods of time, feel to you when you suffer like God does not care. That's how it will feel. The Psalms are full of this language. The Psalms Psalms is not some happy-go-lucky book of the Bible. It is very realistic about what life in a fallen world is like. I'll just give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 119, beginning in verse 82, the psalmist writes, My eyes long for your promise. I ask, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? And then Psalm 88, beginning in verse 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me... He's writing to God. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. In our helplessness, in our suffering... We will feel like the widow in the parable, and it will seem as if God is just like that judge, and he does not care. He's uninterested, uncaring, unloving, and those kind of feelings can cripple your faith. So what can we do? How do we counter this? And the answer is... You can't let your feelings drive your faith. You've got to let the facts drive your faith. If you let feelings drive your faith, you'll give up and you won't pray. You'll say, Why bother praying? I've prayed about this situation for months or years, nothing's changed. Why why give it any more attention? Those are the feelings, but what are the facts? What are the facts? We read about them in verses 7 and 8. Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and that's the key phrase, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Okay, so no matter how you feel, this is what you've got to tell yourself. No matter how you feel, the fact is God does care. God does love you. Friends, the fact is that God cares about even the smallest amount of suffering that you go through. In fact, there's this one beautiful place where Jesus says that there's not a hair that falls from your head apart from the will of your Father. He cares. He loves And that is proven to us by the existence of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that in Jesus Christ, God became a man. And that man endured all the suffering that you and I will ever suffer. He entered into this fallen existence called life on earth. And then he went to the cross. And he died not for his sins because he had no sins. He died for our sins as our substitute in our place. Those are the facts. And whenever I'm, dis- whenever I'm discouraged because I've prayed about something and it just seems like there's no answer, nothing's changing, I always go back to a quote I read years and years ago by John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. Whenever I'm tempted to think that God can't care, that my prayers are fruitless, I go back to this quote. Let me read it to you. He writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agony of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have instead turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through His hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. We can be absolutely certain that God loves and God cares because of Jesus. If God didn't care, Jesus would have never come. If God doesn't love, Jesus would have never died for us. And so when, you, when your feelings start to push you away from prayer, let the facts preach to you. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was raised again. Jesus ascended into heaven, and Jesus will return. That's what verse 8's all about. When the Son of Man comes, Jesus will return. And I tell you that when Jesus returns, we will get justice. And when Jesus returns, there will be no more suffering. Those are the facts. And if you let those facts preach to you, in the meantime, in that, in that gap between the prayer and the answer, you'll see God work in innumerable ways if you will just keep on praying. So, for example, going, I didn't tell you how the Paul Miller story ended. So let's go back to that story. Again, on most mornings for years, Paul's on the first floor yelling to the second floor, Kim, quit pacing, and nothing changes, right? So uh, one morning, he started to get out of bed, and his wife said, why are you getting out of bed? Why, why don't you just yell at her like you always do? He said, well, it's been 10 years, and the yelling hasn't changed anything, so I'm going to try something different this morning. I'm going to go upstairs and pray with Kim. And she laughed, and she said, it hasn't been 10 years, it's been 20 years, but go ahead. So he went upstairs, and he went to Kim's room, and she's in her bed now under the covers because pretending to be asleep because she's not supposed to get up and pace at 4.30 in the morning. And he just sat on her bed and put his hands on her covers, and he prayed. And that morning... That morning, God did answer his prayer because she went back to sleep. But that was like the least important of the answers Paul got out of that prayer. He writes in his book, as soon as I started praying, a thought came to me completely from left field. I had underestimated Kim's ability to pray on her own. My view of her had been too narrow. I'd looked at her as a disabled person and not as a young woman made in the image of God, able to communicate with her Heavenly Father. It created a new expectation in my heart for her, a new hope that she can grow spiritually. So instead of fighting Kim's problems with my anger, I can focus on a new vision of her learning to pray. Now, it wasn't like Kim never got out of bed early again after that morning, okay? And that's kind of the way God answers prayers in my experience. She got out of bed again the next morning. And Paul Miller says every other morning he dragged himself out of bed, go upstairs and pray with Kim. But then four months after he prayed that prayer, they moved to a different house. And Kim slept till 730 in the morning. And they realized that across the street from their old house had been a factory with a bunch of diesel trucks coming in and out of it early every morning, and because of her autism, she was hypersensitive to noise, and that's what was waking her up. So it took four months, but God fully answered Paul Miller's prayer. Okay, now here's the danger, because I can already see it in some of your faces. The cynical among us would say, well, it would have happened anyway, right? He didn't have to pray, he just had to move. This wasn't, this wasn't an act of God. This was just luck. That's what a cynical person would say in response to that story. And I've got to fight that in my own spirit. I'm not blaming anybody for feeling that way. I would be very tempted to think that as well. It's not an answer to prayer. It's just circumstance. It happened to work out that way. But again, 98% of the time, that's how answers to prayer work. When you pray, in my experience, an angel doesn't show up immediately and tell you exactly what's going to happen. God waits. He reveals things on his own timetable and in his own way. It's not open and obvious so that everybody in the world will believe it. Why does God operate like that? Why does God answer prayer like that? And I think the key is go back to verse 8 one more time. Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, He's the Son of Man, when I return, will He find faith on earth? You see, when we go through hard times, we immediately blame God and we say, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why aren't you fixing this? Why are you letting me suffer? And Jesus says, no, no, no. We're not going to play that game. I'm going to turn it around on you. God knows God cares, you will get justice, your suffering will stop, but when I return, will I find people who believe it? Will I find faith on earth? He won't let us blame God. He's looking at us. Will you have faith that God is working? That's the question. What do I mean by that? I mean, will you receive the blessings and answered prayers that come your way in this life as gifts from God, or will you be a cynic? Will you say, well, God didn't do that. God didn't answer that prayer. It was going to work out that way anyway. Are you going to see your life and everything in it for what it is, a gift from God, or are you just going to be a cynic? and say God really doesn't work at all in this world. And the way, the the only way, that will keep you from turning into a cynic is by watching carefully through prayer. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's what prayer is. Prayer is paying attention to your life, paying attention to the lives of the people around you so that you see when God works and you don't miss it. So again, Paul Miller writes this. When you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your burdens to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. I love that. I don't want to worry. I want to watch. You watch God weave His patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you're inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see Him work, and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. So when we pray, we're watching. We're on the lookout for God to work. And when God's work shows up, when He answers some prayer, we see it, we spot it, it keeps us from being cynical, we praise His holy name, and then when Jesus Christ returns, He finds faith on earth. So we've been talking about constant prayer or prayer without ceasing this morning because that's the point of Jesus' prayer. But that's not the only kind of prayer that there is. There's also scheduled times of prayer. I'll call this communion prayer. So, I mean, constant prayer is great. In response to whatever's going on around you, just kind of bullet prayers, thank you, help me, what next, forgive me, Father, 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 Jesus, 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 those are great. But... We need not just constant prayer, we need set apart times every day of communion prayer. You know, a husband and a wife who just communicate in text messages all day long, I mean, that's great, but they're going to have a shallow relationship. They also need to sit across the table from one another, hold hands, look at each other's eyes, and talk. And that's what communion prayer is. So, as we wrap up, I just want to give you some tips. For how to spend time with your Heavenly Father. Okay? And they're there in your handout if you have one. First of all, take baby steps. Do not go home after the sermon and say, I'm going to start spending 90 minutes every day alone with the Lord. Okay? That will last maybe two days. Start off with five minutes, ten minutes. Be realistic. Take baby steps. Number two, go to bed. Mornings are the times when almost all of us are most alert, most able to focus, most able to concentrate. But to get up in the morning to pray takes planning the night before. Go to bed. Number three, in the morning, get awake. Maybe take a shower before you try to pray. If you're a coffee drinker, have that cup of coffee. Coffee is God's gift to you all. (laughs) Use it number four find a quiet place that's another good thing about early in the morning it's quiet number five find a regular place it is amazing to me when I'm not in my home how hard it is for me to pray in the mornings because I'm always looking around like the hotel room or just some some new place to pray and it just trips me up find a it's gotta be a regular place number six get comfortable I know there are ministers who talk about their prayer stools and how they have calluses on their knees because they've spent so much time in prayer on their knees. Don't worry about that. Get comfortable. Maybe you probably do need to get out of bed because if you're like me, you go back to sleep. But once you're out of bed and you're awake, be comfortable. Don't feel like you've got to do this in some... The Bible does not mandate a prayer position. And then number seven, keep at it. Way better to pray five minutes every day than 30 minutes once a week. Because those five-minute times, there will at least be occasions where you'll find yourself praying 20 minutes and you can't believe where the time has gone. But if you give God the space, then through the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will show up. And all you have to do is open wide your mouth and He will fill it. And you'll find that you will come to know God personally. As much as you know any family member or friend on earth. So my friends, don't lose heart. But pray. Because Jesus is the one who said, Come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray together.